Welcome to Friars and Film. We are three Catholic priests from the Order of Preachers, and we're here, as always, to talk about the movies. Well, it's good to be back after Easter. We have a triumphant movie for champions only. Um... Chariots of Fire. So Chariots of Fire is a classic. It's a 1981 film by Hugh Hudson based on real life events. I want to just open this with general impressions because the the plot's simple enough. Reverend Fathers, what's your take on a... a, And I'm not trying to set this up, but on a... This is a classic film, but we should speak honest. I I think there's... I think it's good and not perfect. Anyway... First impressions, number one, wow, slow-mo. I think we were just discovering the whole slow-mo thing in the early 80s. I don't, I'm not sure about that. It was just a guess. Um, loving the synthesized oh my 80s soundtrack. I was getting some serious Blade Runner vibes again and um, really loving that. Also, third and final superficial thought, wow, so overdone they're just going for it in so many of these scenes and yet um i love it i I I think it's it's admirably overdone is is uh the way i put it yeah i would say it's a little bit cheesy and melodramatic this is the first time i'd seen it so i I was approaching it knowing it was some kind of canonical film but i didn't realize there was these time discrepancies so it takes place in the 20s uh, and it's done in the 80s. And I, and I knew the theme, the melody of it, but I didn't know that in the film it's actually synthesized. You know, I think I'd heard people play it on piano before. Is it a very popular thing for people to learn on piano? It probably yeah, is. sure. So I was really kind of shocked that you have these early 20th century Cambridge students and this 80s synth. But the aesthetic is really nice just as a vehicle for the preservation of what it might have been to be, you know, early 20th century Cambridge student and to be in that early Olympic milieu is, you know, helpful in itself. Yeah, I don't think the synth ages well. Like, I, I think people at the time were just like, this is a, this is a great atmosphere. I think we could kind of finish talking about the music in a moment and go into the movie but that is kind of what it's known for i mean even like evita about evita perone you know it's don't cry for me argentina like there are a lot of movies that people mostly just know the theme song like um is is this the is this the first one of the origins of the sports movie what what about the hockey movie the one about the russians when was that do you remember that you mean um when the when the u.s won in the olympics um, was that mid eighties, probably? No, I think that was much more modern. I could be wrong. Okay. I mean, there, there's also like Hoosiers about the Indiana basketball team from this era. I don't, I don't know what's first. It's actually a good question. So I'm looking right here. Like, all right, this was made in eighty one. Hoosiers was made in eighty six. It could. I think yeah. it was. I think it was instrumental in popularizing it. I don't know about the first. Yeah. Let's let's move on to the sports theme. I think that's a good path to take my last comment about the music and the slow motion is um the the synth is not just used for the themes like when the americans show up halfway through for the olympics the synth goes crazy and they're like doing bicycle exercises in the air and i'm just like 
this. Yeah. I think they should re-edit this film sound-wise, um, and it would be more classic. But there is also, with the slow-mo, I, I, I guess for... I, I also wonder just technically, like, the opening scene is very iconic with them running on the beach. And I kind of thought about... The camera's fairly stable. I guess someone would have had to been driving in a truck or something like that. That's actually kind of impressive technically to have a long shot where, you know, the cameras... It's not like the Bourne... What's the second Bourne movie? The Bourne Supremacy. Supremacy. I, I felt like that was the jerkiest camera in any film ever. Um, maybe that was the point. So the first Rocky was in the 70s, by the way. Okay. So I, I guess to me, the, the reason why I do like... I don't love, but I like this film... I think the characters, I mean, this is worth saying, too. The three thoughts that come to mind for me, which we could maybe uh, venture into, is I like the characters. There's also the theme of, like, there's a nobility of character. There's also the theme of Sunday keeping holy. And it's it's interesting, too, because Harold Abraham is, like, Jewish and, I don't know, keeping a different Sabbath. But there's, there's something about the Sabbath that's worth mentioning. And I think also, like, there is something about the sports movie itself. Yeah, I, I, I think sports, we, we properly get caught up in for a time. It doesn't have to be the centerpiece. I mean, it shouldn't replace Sunday Mass. Um, I, I, I myself am a track runner of the past. I'm, I'm, I'm living in my glory days because I'm, I mean, I'm already old like these guys looking back. It's interesting too, like how much things have progressed. There's a, like he was running. I was looking up his times because he forgoes the 100 meter dash at the Paris Olympics and runs the 400. And like I, he was running like a mid 49, like a 49.8. And like I was even running faster than that in high school. I was running like a 49.3. Now, he breaks the world record, and he, he drops to, like, a 47, which is really impressive. But it is also, there's also kind of like a, I love running. There, it's, it's a little cheesy when he throws his head back, and everyone in the audience is like, there it is. He's throwing his head back. He's got him. But there, there is, like, like Eric Little says, Jenny, I believe God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. I mean, I, I do think there's a distinct pleasure in running, and I think there's a distinct pleasure in each sport. And I think just like a two-hour movie, so a two-hour game, you know, even great people have been caught up, like, in, in rightly so. Even Aquinas in the Summa, I remember, talks about how, when he's talking about the difference between love and just sort of, like, affection, he talks about affection as this preference for a boxer, like you're watching a boxing match and you're like, I like this guy, let's go. You know, like not even Thomas Aquinas for all of his big brain was condemning this. There, there, there is a place in life uh, for getting caught up in sports, whether you're the runner or the one watching or another sport. So I kind of, yeah, I kind of defend the theme, I think on proper theological grounds. Like there's like real human affection and contest and intrigue that is that that actually it, we we've never we've never not had in human life it's worth saying that human life has never been like sport free you know so I, let's not be puritanical yeah, yeah. about it we should have a little I'm, soundtrack to our lives saying yeah this is cool 
It really, the sports really is an interesting philosophical question. I mean, a cultural question. What is it? You know, why is it legitimate? What is its role? Um, in the Iliad, I think there's a point where they break in the battle and the soldiers just have an Olympics, a round of games. Uh, you look for kind of comparisons and analogs. I mean, dancing is a kind of social activity you know in one sense it's not necessary but on the other hand it's a kind of expression of social life and a unique realization of it you know maybe sports is like like dancing in some sense like in in the way that dancing is romantic it's on the way to marital bonds and society built on those marital bonds well maybe sports is like on the way to military action I, I think that's here too. I mean, World War One is in the background here, so this is the generation immediately following the First World War, and and I think the Olympics. You know, people hope that it would be a kind of safe outlet for nationalism, and I don't think it worked out that way, at least not initially, because the the Olympics were revived at the end of the 19th century, so it didn't really work out. But it's people still use the Olympics today in that way. There's a, there's a little article online on the Catholic thing by Michael Pakulik talking about the alteration of the, of the Olympic uh, slogan, which originally was Kittius, Altius, Fortius, Faster, Higher, Stronger. And now they've added in the last, I don't know, couple of decades in modern times, uh, communitaire, together. They've added together to this slogan in order to kind of soften the nationalistic edge, I think, of the competition. Because the sports, you know, especially inter-ethnic or international um, sports, can be, can be an intermediary, a block to going to war, but, can, but it can also sort of stir up the same kind of passions and ideals that lead to war. Um, so it has this kind of ambiguous character. So I just think that it has something to do with our animality, our, our aggression, our um, love of greatness, like physical beauty. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that up to a point, but it, but it is related to war, which can be just, but is also uh, tragic and terrifying. That's cool to hear all that, and I totally agree. And um, just this past week, I had a... Uh... It was a wonderful week because I got to go to two Major League Baseball games in under 24 hours. So that was a great thing. All um, right, Father Luke. The San Luke. Francisco Giants came to New York City, and uh, whenever that happens, I make an effort to get to the ballpark to see my team and hopefully watch them beat the Mets. Um, they won the first game, lost the second game. But um, one thing I was reflecting on watching these games is the way that, um, yeah, it's just it's such a funny Thing, the whole experience of being in a crowd watching a game when you think about it on a kind of philosophical level it's you know i was i was literally sitting there thinking about it and then just how it's like here you're you're surrounded by all these people all these fans who are fixated on what these athletes are doing on this stage which is the field and they've all taken a side and they're all rooting for in a, in a very passionate way their side to win and 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 so it really does feel like a battle and um number one you have all the cheering that's going on for the sake of one of the sides but then you just as much have the jeering and the um the hostility being directed towards the other side and 
and so what really spoke what that spoke to me of is is um, just how yeah sports create a kind of you know quote unquote safe space for us to kind of enact our need not only for a hero and for a winning victorious side but also our need for a villain and our and our need to sort of point to someone that we're against that we're fighting against and whose downfall we're rooting for <laughs> so um yeah there's a, a real way in which yeah particip- being a participant in the sports um both as a player and as a fan is a kind of a safe way to experience um, warfare on some level the other peacemaking aspect of sports, I think, is exhibited in the, the difficulties of the Jew and the Christian. At one level, the drama is about how, do you, how are you a Christian, how are you a Jew in a modern society? And the movie proposes that sports can be not only unifying between nations, between communities, but within a community. You take these, these men, you know, one is a Scot, one is a Jew, one is sort of you know, Cambridge-born, etc. Yeah, it unified them. The other thing in commenting, Father Allen, that do you you guys know about Henri Didon, the Dominican friar from the Toulouse province? Yeah, he's the one who came up with the original Olympic slogan. And he proposed, yeah, he proposed it to them in the 1890s. He's, he's somewhat, yeah, influential in the refounding of the modern Olympics. He also wrote this book on the indissolubility of marriage. Anyway... Henri Didon's worth looking up, D-I-D-O-N, probably a Dominican we don't emphasize enough. Because he mostly, he wasn't writing big theological tomes, he was training youth and mm-hmm. running these sports camps. Um, but had a, had a pretty major role in European sports in that era. I also, I think it's worth talking about the Sabbath, right? Because there's something, there's a parallel in worship. I mean, Eric Little in the movie is honorable for not running the 100 meters on the Lord's Day. But this is, it is a little bit of a, I mean, the Scottish Presbyterianism, even in its hymnody throughout the movie, is a little stuffy. Even the, yeah. ser- the sermonizing is a little stuffy. Like, this is, this is one interpretation of the third commandment. I don't know. I don't want to just debate whether you can compete in sports on Sunday. Yeah. But there's, it's, it's debatable. Yeah, and Eric Little, you know, went on to become... A missionary in China, just like his parents were, he died in an internment camp in 1945. I mean, he's he's deeply noble, and I think there's it's it's very hard to criticize him. You know, like he won't shake the future king's hand. Like he he he's, he has some Puritan in him, yeah, um, some rigorist, and I think that's able to be criticized, and yet. You know, th- I almost compare him to a movie we've previously done, Franz Jaeger's daughter in A Hidden Life. Like, Franz Jaeger's daughter didn't look around his village and say, um, everyone's committing mortal sin for taking this oath. And neither did Eric Little think the same thing of all fellow Olympians, most of whom were probably baptized Christians. Um, but there is something about, like, an individual man who has a very deep religious conviction of heart which which I find always interesting. Now, this one is about not an oath like Franz Jaeger started, but keeping the Sabbath and resting, yeah. you know, not racing. But I, I think there's something I don't agree with entirely, but I admire and see as virtue. So maybe not necessarily the only interpretation of the truth of the Sabbath. There are options, but virtue, real virtue in his heart. 
it's a typically modern portrayal of religious belief where it's the individual versus everyone else and you can't really explain your belief because it's not it's not based on a kind of common reason as much as just something deeply felt and everybody respects it because it's deeply felt and not because it's necessarily reasonable it is laudable to a certain extent but one of the things that i think is mostly problematic about it is that we can confuse sports with work and i think i think actually both of the the protagonists do this to a certain extent. I mean, the Christian idea is that you shouldn't work on the Sabbath. Well, is running work in its essence, not to do with like the actual organization of the games and so on? I mean, I think fundamentally we'd have to say it's play. It's in some sense the opposite of work. And in that sense, it's, it's like God's rest. You know, because when God rests after creation, it's not really because he's tired. It's more like an exuberance, it's, and it's a spiritual activity, because God doesn't get tired. So to play on the Sabbath can be to observe the Sabbath. And then you have on the, the Jewish side the issue of monetizing and professionalizing sports. You know, So whatever you think of the Cambridge ideal, the British ideal of sports as being an amateur activity... It does have this to say for it, that that it's recognizing sport as as play and as something that you do out of a kind of exuberance of youth and not so much out of like a workman professional attitude, you know, to do with money, to do with exchange and to do with like myopic dedication. You know, today when sports are so professionalized and you hear about how Olympic athletes train and things you have to raise the question is this inhuman to have people totally dedicated to this and and you know not having a social life and you know some of the the female um gymnasts now will complain about that right that there's a question about that whether their childhood is stolen from them because they're sort of dedicated to this sport yeah there's something too about how does something end like work is a task to be accomplished and finished, and then you can rest. But there's, there's a different. Like I was mentioning this too. I little broke, you know, the 400 record, 47. And and in, interesting enough, records keep getting broken. Like throughout the 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 decades, they get lower and lower, and different records are set. And there's something like, there's something like when someone breaks a record, for instance, or even crosses the finish line and leans into the tape before someone else. The completion of that action isn't sort of like, all right, we're done. You know, let's let's now go and rest. It's a, it's, you know, it's a form of play. Maybe it's military rehearsal and unification, but there's also, as you're saying, play in the sense of, whenever it finishes, or any game, or any last shot, or any home run. Last night, the Red Sox actually came back to tie the game, and then Bo Bichette from, he hit a grand slam. We have the same birthday, me and Bo. And uh, you made me mad, but like there, there, there's the ending of a game is sort of like it's surprising, it's delightful, it's just a, it's just a very different kind of thing from work. The the whole um, yeah, the whole professionalizing of sports today, it, I think that's absolutely hugely problematic. And actually, I often feel in a little bit guilty, um, just as a, I mean, I guess you know, to be perfectly honest, I would call myself a consumer of the professionalizing of sports. I, I love following sports. I love watching professional um, football players and baseball players doing their thing. But um, 
I think there is something deeply questionable about, okay, does it really work on a human level to make, make the athleticism of your body, like the top priority in one's life? And are we, are we hindering the full flowering of humanity of every generation as they, as they come of age by teaching them, inviting them to enter into sports at such a high level, like, like we see today in, in college sports and professional sports. And, um, I think Aristotle talks about that, how like there's a danger to becoming too ethereal as a person, but also a danger to becoming too animal as a person. And I think we sometimes are teaching, you know, our, our young generations to, um, to, to be so focused on the comp- athletic competition that they, uh, they become more about the, their, their life becomes more about the body than about the spirit, than about the mind. And um, so th- there's, it's, it's a hugely huge question. I think the, the Sabbath question in this, in this movie, it, yeah, there's different ways to interpret whether um, the Scottish fellow is correct in his, dis- his decision. But at the very least, what it does is it focuses the fact that Little is able to understand the different priorities in his life correctly, that God and his devotion to God and his religious life has to ha- take first place in his life. Whereas the other, other fellow, the Jewish fellow, he, um, you know, despite uh, claiming his Jewish heritage, he, he doesn't seem to put God and his religious life at, at the first place in his priorities. Rather, he's placing his own athletic competition in the first category of priority. And that what that ends up doing to them, you can see how the latter is really kind of, he's, his life is sort of disfigured in a way by that overemphasizing of athletics. So you see how he's filled with anxiety in, in his running. He's not able to run for joy because he's, he's terrified of losing. Whereas Little, he's um, by placing God number one, he's able to see athletic, athletics as it really is, as not a be-all, do-all, end-all. And therefore, he's able to run with joy because there, there's room in his competition for God. And, and so that's, that's what I think we have to be teaching all of our young people to do, to love athletics, but don't let it become your do-all and all. No, and that's, that's the, you're naming the complexities of each of these characters, Father Luke, in a very good way that, you know, even it infringes upon love of neighbor, is that Harold Abraham kind of issues the woman that loves him, not only God, but her, in pursuit of this, and, um, Eric Little still wins, and he marries the love of his life, and he serves as a you know he kind of it, it's it's kind of like what Christ said in a way, not to draw too strong a contrast between these men who were friends, and who each had a certain goodness. But you remember Christ says like to him who has more will be given, to him who has not even what he has will be That's taken true. away. Like there's something about like it is grace upon grace. Moving from glory to glory, those who put God first, and all things will be added unto you That's right. if you seek first God's kingdom. And if you don't, everything kind of one by one can slowly fall away. That mystery is between those two characters. Yeah, that's so true. And the other thing to be said is um, about the joy and the freedom. Yeah, that, I think that's the great nobility. It's not necessarily his stubbornness of Eric Little. He stood up for the Sabbath. He... It's like none of these things really deeply matter. They're not his life, you know, and I think you could pick up on that. I mean, an opposite example, talking about the monetization, the over-animalization of things, not to go off course too much, LeBron James is rumored to spend a million dollars yearly on his body. You ever heard that? 
Mm-hmm. Nutrition, training, all these things. And he's still not as good as Michael Jordan. I'm just going <laughs> to say it on air. Like spending more money in desperation to, to be the greatest. And it's like, sorry, you, you're not going to ever be. He's, he's, he's one of the greatest, but not the... Um, I've even seen that too at... Um, I've seen this in our culture in not just in high school or childhood. I mean, in in college, there are students who are at this Ivy League school, and this is said with due respect, who culturally, it's part of their identity. They, Dartmouth offers no uh, athletic scholarships. They get no money for this. But it's sort of like you give a good 50% of your time in your precious few only four years of college to like... You know, play on the football team, play on the softball team, cross country, and it's a huge, heavy burden. It's like, why would you give those four years to this sport where you're not really competing truly nationally, and it's not going to play out in the rest of your life? Like, this is the end of the line. You should have quit four years ago. Now you're actually graduating late and taking summer classes to make up. It just doesn't... But it's all about identity as well. The other thing, too, is sports can become so much about who I am. I mean, you hear this in youth group retreats, too. Soccer was my God, but then I found God. So it's kind of cheesy, but there is something about not just the time and money. There's, it's sunk down to the level of identity in our day and age, which just on the surface is just like, um, well, that won't last, you know? Right. But you always have those glory days to look back on. <laughs> um, and also, don't get injured. There's so many injuries nowadays, too. That's right. right. And I feel like people don't realize that the injuries will continue with you throughout your life. Yeah. I know, like, one of my close friends from Steubenville, he broke all the running back records at our um, high school. I mean, he was incredible, but he's a good friend of mine, deals with back issues. You know, he's a young dad, he has a couple kids, but, like, serious back issues from a couple hits. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, running too, people's knees. Anyway, you could also need a knee replacement if you garden too much and crouch down. So, Hey, I, I know that we need to wrap up soon, but before we do, I just, I just have to make the point that, um, so I'm just going to go out on a limb here. This is a little bit mystical, poetic, but I just want to point out the, that, that opening scene is also, of course, the closing scene, right? So the whole movie is bookended by these two scenes of them running on the beach. And I just want to say that that scene of them running on the beach to me is is absolutely supposed to be taken. And I do take it as like a, a scene of the blessed running in heaven. <laughs> totally, totally. <laughs> that, is, that is a scene of like the glorified saints running the great run, doing the great dance. And... Um, Oh my goodness, and of course, and of course, you know that just reminds us that you know Saint Paul. He often talks about the the journey to heaven as indeed a great run, you know, and he's he's the victor running, striving to get to the finish line. And um, C.S. Lewis in the Last Battle, he he, he describes or visualizes the he- the heavenly life as a life of running deeper and deeper, further up, further in, without getting tired, and. Um, and yeah, and then just to say that the the way that, that that the movie ends, I love the way that that, or excuse me, the way that that scene ends. So the camera is panning, watching them as they first come towards you. And then you get some close-ups of the runners, and then the camera pans back and watches them continue past you down the beach. 
And um, but then these remember there's the, there's the boy and the, and the dog and the old man watching them, and then the boy and the old man are watching them pass, and then they begin to walk after them. The dog runs, and the boy and the man begin to walk, and I just love that. It's like this invitation of like, okay, I'm not one of the blessed yet. I'm not an Olympic champion runner in my quest for for the heavenly life, but I am called to at least begin to walk in their path so that I can eventually run in their path. Father Allen, you, I agree. You agree. <laughs> I, yeah, I already agreed. Yeah. So I, I maybe no, we, this reminds me of the tree of life. They, they have their imagery of the afterlife, which is on a beach, right? Father Luke, now he's coming along. He, he makes Terrence Malick references to every other film. He's coming <laughs> yeah. along. <laughs> So maybe maybe we we're gonna do the crimes and misdemeanors next, but maybe we end with that quote from Corinthians. Do we have anything sure. else? Not I. Without further ado, First Corinthians nine, starting with verse twenty-three. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run so as to win. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that withers. We run to win a crown which will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. But I beat my body and make it my slave so that I, after I have preached to others, I myself may not be disqualified from the prize. So towards heaven, this is my ad lib. Run so as to win in the Christian life. May you, Reverend Fathers, do so today in the remaining hours we have. Amen. Hallelujah. Easter season. Thank you. (laughs) Until next time, and we'll go out with a theme song because we couldn't get away with choosing an alternative. Full synth, full power. Full slow-mo. That's it. 